Hello, I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome to Building Our Future, the podcast where we meet the people shaping the way we design, construct, and utilize our built environment. Great news this week is we are now available on Spotify, so if that's a platform you use, do feel free to listen to us there. In the past few weeks, we've spent a lot of time thinking about community, and particularly how it relates to property. This week, I thought I'd turn my attention to retail, and I wanted to speak to someone with answers to the often reported crisis that's appearing on the UK's high streets. It probably shouldn't have come as a surprise that we almost immediately started talking about the importance of community and convenience retail destinations, if they're to survive and flourish in the new retail environment. The retail sector does seem to be fairly emotive at the moment, and I'm sure some opinions that are voiced in this episode are not shared by all of our listeners. But if you do want to pick up the debate, remember that you can now find me on Twitter at at building underscore R, uh, and I will be mentally preparing myself for my first wave of real estate-related trolling. My guest today is Mark Robinson. In 2008, with the property market in the doldrums of a severe market downturn, Mark, a chartered surveyor with 15 years of experience under his belt, teamed up with banker Morgan Garfield to form Elandi, now the UK's leading investment manager of community shopping centres. Mark is president-elect of Revo, the retail property industry body, and one of the more outspoken commentators in the sector. He's recently been described as the UK's leading retail apocalypse denier. So Mark, with that introduction, welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure to join you. First podcast I've ever done. I'm quite excited and a little nervous. As I was just discussing, you will be more fluent than your host, so no <laughs> need to worry on that front. I think I want to start with a question of nomenclature. Our industry has traditionally been incredibly lazy about shopping centre definitions. So you've had prime and you've had secondary. Uh, for the real forward thinking, you may also have a local centre categorisation. But unfortunately, these definitions are blurry, they're pretty fluid, and ultimately, they're fairly arbitrary. Alandi's stated focus is on community shopping centres. What exactly are these, and how are you you going about defining them? There's a number of major structural changes going on in the retail market. One of them is to do with polarisation. Now, that is very much the two forms of shopping, the two purposes of shopping that seem to be sustainable, I wouldn't say thriving, because I don't think anything's thriving at the moment, are high-end experiential and day-to-day value and convenience. And if you unpack that a little bit further, the, the three main growth areas within retail are, no surprise, the internet, but also growing as strongly, certainly as the internet matures as a channel, are value and convenience retailing. So are they the same thing? They're not quite, they're interrelated, I think it's fair to say. You know, to be a value retailer, you have to be convenient because you're going to be selling cheap goods and people aren't going to travel a long way for them, so you've got to be close to your customer. So they are, they are interrelated, undoubtedly, but you can have high-value convenience as well, if that makes any sense. So, you know, a Waitrose local, right, you wouldn't say it's necessarily value, but it's certainly convenient. But if you're actually doing your click and collect at John Lewis, who are never knowingly undersold you might then argue, is value and convenience. The reason we put the community wrapper over it is, you know, we passionately believe in communities having a sense of place and having pride in their local environment, which 
is often led by shopping on ground floor, but it's all the other uses that go to making a sense of place. And I think for, for a place to really work, you have to have that sense of community. Otherwise, it is just a strip mile, as they'd call it in the States. Um, and if we invest in places that do have that sense of identity, it enables us or allows us certainly to pull on other value drivers that you wouldn't have otherwise by creating events and um, you know, local pride and uh, keep people coming back to the town centre because they, you know, they believe in their town centre and they want to see it thrive. The community is, is something we've spoken about quite a lot on the show, whether it's in the context of music last week with Shane Shapiro or, or offices, and it, it's very much kind of in vogue in terms of driving values through the, the sense of community. When you think about it from a retail perspective, does this rule out um, centres which may be at transport junctions? So your, your average shopping centre above an underground station in London, one couldn't really call that community centre, but it is a convenience centre. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, mean, I think that's a, a valid difference in the, in the definition. And certainly, you know, without front-running the process that we're going through at Ruvo, you will see there will, will be a difference. Uh, alluding to that there is it's a big debate i mean you know you're absolutely correct i mean we've been talking about community for four or five years and it's rather nice that everybody else seems to have got on the bus with us um but it now means that everybody wants a bit of community and uh you know there are some egregious examples of some of our fellow travelers in the retail space calling their shopping places community centers when i i certainly wouldn't but it suits them to do that at the moment is community more than tied to town center locations or what what defines a community centre. When you're, when you're looking at a shopping centre as an investment, how do you go about assessing its community value? There's the wider idea of community. So I think you, you might say, you know, where, where do people call their town? Where's their local place that they feel an, an affinity to? You know, other people have described it as, where's your local football team sort of thing? It's that sort of, that sense of belonging to a place gives it a sense of community, which has some value. As an investment manager, what do you find interesting about these community centres? We're, we're interested in them because they work. You know, it's that simple. Unpacking underneath the subjective definition of community, community centres to us are shopping centres that will well, dominate the supply of retail within the town. They will be the prime pitch of retail within the town. And that thing that we call the shopping centre will very much dominate the shopping catchment as well. That's just what works for us. We, we see all over the UK that if you've got a right-sized scheme that provides the best shops and most of the shops within the town, there is enough retailers to fill them. You can have enough rental tension to at least maintain rents at the moment. And these things, for us, should be very, very much investable on a global scale as income assets. But obviously what does happen is everything gets called secondary and there's no, not an awful lot of differentiation between that and something that might be the second scheme in a big city that doesn't really have any defined role or a real purpose for its um for the shopping missions of its customers i've done some rummaging around on your on your website and you do a pretty good job in explaining why or how these community centers are benefiting or, or proving themselves out or proving your investment thesis out one of the first stats as well which is interesting is they're more resilient to online i suppose because there is generally a more convenient or convenience orientated angle to them yep 45 percent of your customers don't shop online yep the average spend looks good your customers are very happy 95 percent of your customers say yep. they're satisfied with your centers they're very loyal you have almost 80 percent shopping in centers more than once a week very convenient people yep. are coming from less than 10 miles and one of the other things which i think ties in with 
something most of us will be aware of is people people are buying food and drink so it's it's becoming more than just a shopping center it's effectively a, a town center where you want a variety of reasons to go yeah we are we are very data driven um you know we do have this big footprint across the whole of the uk we've invested very heavily in working with great data partners like caci and we hope for the hope that leads us to some sort of being able to take thought leadership in in these things so Yes, we do believe there's a, a resilience to online shopping because the sort of goods that are sold within our shopping centres have a very, you know, they're low value, so it actually makes it quite difficult for retailers to deliver them in a cost-effective manner, and the consumer probably doesn't want to pay the premium to get them delivered in that cost-effective manner. And they're the sort of things that people just need. Really, for these town centres to thrive within this community use, you just, you know, they're embedded in people's lives, which is why people go there, you know, 80% of them go at least once a week because they're in town anyway they're in town doing stuff they're in town seeing friends getting a haircut dropping the kids off at school going to the doctors going to the library if the council hasn't shut them of course um so you know it's really to make these things work going forward and the future for our town senses is really to embed them in people's lives one of the problems with retail in the uk is it just became too successful and it became too valuable and it forced out all the other great uses that originally made these town centres thrive and became them these retail monocultures. And really, that's what we've got to unpack over the next five or ten years. And it's going to be really quite brutal for some places because I think some retail places in this squeezed middle, as we call it, um, are, are going to have to undergo drastic change. It's amazing when you when you go to towns, not cities, and you read about the death of the high street and the demise of all these shops. Mm-hmm. Yet you go to these town centres; they're still heaving because ultimately people have to go somewhere, and it, it's still you know a leisure pastime is going to a town centre. Yeah. And ultimately, if you provide people with appropriate facilities, yep. the people are there. It's it's just making sure that the the product is appropriate to the. Sure. I mean, what, what, what has come out of the research that CACI have done, which we validated with our own intercept surveys, though, is, is people won't just go to their town centre to browse anymore. That sort of, it's Saturday afternoon, I'm not doing anything, let's go for a mooch around. You know, people don't do that. Oh, they do it an awful lot less than they used to. They still go to their town, but they're very purpose-driven. They go there because they want to do something. Or right. They go shopping whilst they are doing something else. And they know what's in their town centres. And that's why we've got really high satisfaction rates, because people know what they're going to get and they know where to find it but is that not true of of most retail centers you kind of know what you're going to get there are towns that are trying to fulfill a function of need for their shoppers that the shoppers don't want and that's why they are failing you know there are towns where based on historical thinking landlords are trying to create value by putting more and more comparison shopping in there by you know the way to transform this town center is to put more fashion shopping in and you know that is a tide you cannot fight at the moment and there's going to be some will continue to be some pretty bad malinvestment where people are buying in tenants who shouldn't be there and it ain't going to work which brings me on to my next question very nicely actually so your stated business mission is to curate the best possible town centres for the benefit of our local communities, our retailers and our investors. In this environment, how do you go about doing that? If you aren't cognizant of what the community needs, you ain't going to make any money. That, it, it's kind of that simple. You've really got to understand what the purpose of the town is now and what the potential of the town is to make the most of that purpose. Just buying a shopping centre, buying some tenants in, 
changing the entrances doesn't work. You've really got to understand why that town exists, why it's existed in the past, why it's going through change, and what the future really is. And that is that is driven by the the needs based of the local uh, the local catchment. This is a, a scenario where shopping centres in town centres have a, a real advantage over traditional high streets in terms of having having that single ownership really does give you that ability to curate what is appropriate. Whereas if you are in the high street, you're you're ultimately, you know, you don't have enough scale to, to manage that change and it becomes a, a race to the bottom as everyone looks after their own interests. To be fair, it's still an issue in towns where you do have a shopping centre because I think to provide these solutions, you know, you, you, you've got to break down the wall of putting a red line around a shopping centre. You've got to consider it within the context of its wider town, both in terms of its challenges and its, uh, and, and its attractions. So I think it's easier clearly to intervene where you own a big land holding and you will get better outcomes. Um, you know, really good example of that at the other end of the spectrum is the way the Howard DeWalden estate turned around Marlborough High Street sort of 15, 20 years ago when I... 25 years ago when I first came to London. Um, you know, they could do that because they owned all of it. And really for local authorities to be able to get a grip with these challenges, central government has to put in place a framework of some description to allow them to do that as well. There has been uh, a, a paper done about town centre investment management, which Peter Brett Associates have been promoting. I think that's a really interesting idea that you empower local authorities with CPO powers not to buy stuff to develop, but you buy stuff to curate, asset manage, um, and work with uh, private sector partners to, to deliver that for them. We'd be very interested in uh, getting involved in that sort of work. You already are involved to an extent, aren't you? Don't you have a partnership with a, uh, a local authority? Yeah, we work with a local authority, and uh, they, you know, they have bought a shopping centre that we previously owned, and we've, they've kept us on board for the ride because they bought into our vision. I think that's going to happen more and more. And there, is, there are plans to expand that shopping centre by acquiring additional land to do development. But the sort of town centre investment management thing is subtly different. It is about putting together land holdings for longer term asset management curation, not sort of wham, bam, knock it down, here's a new town centre. It's part of the, the wider debate about councils buying properties at the moment using the, um, the Public Works Loans Board where they effectively can access 100% LTV data at 1%. It seems like the, the an obvious conclusion is they probably ought not to be doing that outside of their own boroughs or districts. Well, in- interesting enough, it's, it's often misreported. There is not an example of a local authority buying a shopping centre or a town centre outside of their own ship. Right, but yep. just property. property so, but will they buy a retail park or a, an office investment at the other end of the country just for income? Absolutely. Yeah. But all of the town centre investment, shopping centre-led investment, has been within their own borough. Yep. Um, and there is nothing intrinsically wrong with that. At the moment, we have got a massive market dislocation, which, frankly is enormous it probably affects 50 percent 50 percent the research we've done with CACI indicates that 50 percent of shopping locations in the UK are not fit for purpose Mm. and that largely means oversupplied with retail and the only body capable of really getting to grips with that at the moment with the structures in place is a local authority and PWLB money was intended to do that it's for infrastructure improvements and if sorting out your town centre, if that's not an infrastructure 
investment. I don't know what is. I'm totally in favour of the theory. And it, uh, I think my only point is there isn't a one-size-fits-all no. solution. So in certain instances, the local authority may be the correct partner to drive through the revitalization of the town centre. In other instances, they may not have the skill set and it may be best left in the private sector. But again, you get a huge disparity in the skill set of the private sector. Absolutely. I mean, the skill sets are out there. I mean, to be brutally honest, I think it's a massive growth area for our businesses working in collaboration you know, with the public sector. A lot of the criticism, this came out at our conference Retail Rocks last week, around the local authority investment is the what it is, poor quality advice perhaps. That doesn't do well, you know, having invested over a billion pounds in the last 10 years, the majority of which I'm very happy with. You know, you do occasionally make a mistake, so mistakes are made, but if you've bought in at the right price, at least you're on the front foot. And the converse is true. If you've overpaid for something, you just spend the rest of your time running hard to stand still. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of that has gone on with some of the investments that have happened. Then I suppose they are looking at it not from a traditional property returns metrics. That, that as much as it for, for them is about you know, how much do you improve a town centre? Oh, completely agree. That? And if, if when they buy something, they say, we are overpaying for this because if we don't intervene now, the town centre is going to hell in a handcart. Right. That is a valid thing. Saying, we've got a great deal we've bought this at market value for an investment, and it isn't, that, that is where this, the problems are going to happen. I've read uh, Karen Whelan, who's chief exec of Surrey Heath. She's saying that you know, one of the drivers for public sector bodies doing this is really to get the assets out of the private sector's hands and, and crack on with the job of, of regeneration. And I think there's some truth in that. You know, there are some very passive owners and managers out there, but both for, for the way they're set up and possibly because they're out of the money and the motivation isn't there. So again, Absolutely. that makes sense. Yep. So just moving back to the unspoken elephant in the room, which is the much-heralded death of the high street. And by the mass media's use of high street, we can include shopping centres in yep. here. So 2018, we've already seen a reported 21,000 job losses from the collapse of retailers such as Toys R Us, Maplin, House of Fraser, and Pound World. It's pretty brutal when you read the headlines on that. What's going on, and is it terminal? And by that, I mean, are these, are these structural issues within retailers, or is this a fundamental change in the retail dynamics? But every single retailer that reports negative like-for-like sales growth, there are three retailers that are growing. That, that is a fact. But, you know, it's not news, so it doesn't get picked up on. You know, the massive successes of B&M Bargains, JD Sports, two off the top of my head, are rarely reported on, apart from, you know, their share price getting reported on within the financial pages. Can I pick you up on that? B&M Bargains, for people that don't know, discount store. Yeah. Town World, very much discount store. Yeah. One's doing well. One is on the brink of a major restructuring. What? How does like that uh, Picking up on those two things, B&M Bargains is led by Simon Aurora, who is personally invested in the business, is one of the brightest guys in retail, um, has expanded in a professional and um, considered manner. Um, and has a absolutely fabulous business. Pound World uh, was one of three businesses that were all chasing the pound 
the pound pound, if that makes any sense at all. So there's pound world, pound land, and 99p. They were all in a race for space, and they were all in a race for space by guys who are looking to sell the business, either list, which is what pound land did, or sell to private equity, which is what pound world did. They've all had their issues, partly because they all were desperately trying to get into towns in better positions than the other ones and going head-to-head in town. So it was a car crash of those three businesses making. It was a car crash of landlords making, who really should have been a little bit more savvy in just saying, yes, we'll have one of you in the town, because, frankly, at some stage, three are going to go to one, which is exactly what's happened. And I'm pleased to say, we, as, as best we could, we very much took that line. But, yeah, I mean, Pound World was a viable business that was sold by the founder to TPG two and a half years ago for 150 million quid. You know, TPG, I don't know the returns they've made on their 150 million, but it won't be as a result of any investment in that company. Okay, but I guess you would say this as a retail apocalypse denier. Um, but uh, so you view it purely as a structural issues within retail businesses. I've got a particular hobby horse. So everybody blames the decline of retail on the internet. And it's a lazy excuse used by bad retailers and bad landlords. The internet has got a massive, massive effect. There's no two ways about it, but it's not as big as people make out. What people frequently fail to address is the societal change that's going on on all sorts of different levels. You can talk about the housing crisis, how that affects things. So people say, have we passed peak stuff? I've got guys sat within 100 yards of here who are in their 30s, haven't bought a house yet, and share a house with four other people. I'd like to think they earn quite well. Um, Their pay reviews are next week. They'll find out then. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But when you chat to them about I, and I checked about the, uh, the, the growth of convenient shopping. And one of them said to me, yeah, but you've got to realise, I share a fridge with four other people, and it's a family fridge, and we've all got separate food. I can only buy things for the next 48 hours because I can only fit that in the fridge. And it's the same with clothes, furniture, and everything else. When you've got well-paid people who, my generation, you'd be in, have been ensconced in a house and buying like crazy, you know, in your in Ikea with your girlfriend arguing every Saturday morning. You know, they don't even have the opportunity to spend the place to put this stuff. So that's, that's a massive thing that is causing a change in consumption pattern. So, yeah, why not, you know, have experiences, go on great holidays, overpay for smashed avocado on a Sunday morning? Because that's, you know, that's the way you can actually enjoy your money in a way you can't by just consuming things. Now, that's a, that's a London thing, that's a professional thing. But then you look at what's happening with average wage growth or the complete absence of wage growth in the UK. You know, the Resolution Foundation, I think it was this morning, were saying that we've had the lowest amount of real wage growth for 150 years. Now, you can't say that that isn't the major effect, factor that is affecting consumer patterns in the UK. You know, you layer onto that the cost of housing, so there's less disposable income, and all of a sudden, there's an explanation for polarisation. You've got people in their 40s who bought a house in 1995, like me, with lots of cash. You've got people living in London who are spending most of their income renting, and then even if they do have a nice place, they don't have a place to put stuff. And then you've got, frankly, the majority, the majority of people in the UK who are no wealthier than they were 15 years ago. And then you wonder why there is a crisis within retail. There is some, some positive 
takeaways from from the retail environment though and i got this from uh, the presentation you hosted uh, uh, last week or so retail rocks although we have the highest uh, internet sales penetration rates in the in the developed world i think that's right still one third of that online spend touches a store at some point during the, the process and actually although our internet penetration rate is 20 percent plus still 85 percent of all retail spend in the uk touches a store at some point during the process there's a reasonably large spread around this data about you know what is the level of internet penetration at the moment you know the lowest you'll find anywhere is about 6.1 the highest is probably about 20 but what people are forgetting is the growth rate of internet penetration is slowing markedly you know, growth rates have come down from 20 25% to high single digits and are expected to moderate to 6 7 8%. You know, and that's from global data to, a, you know, not a retail property business. They're a retail business, you know, they're a retail analytics business. So they've got no skin in the game when it comes to supporting the high street. It's a disruptive technology that's changed the way people think about things. It's been horrific for margin destruction. I mean, people forget um, that's one of the major effects that the internet has had. It isn't that people are spending on the internet is just everybody expects everything as cheaply as they can find it online. Now, that's a massive challenge to retailers as well. This takes me back to something I mentioned earlier, though, which is the experiential element of shopping. So we're sat here in London. I think it's very easy to associate that experiential side of things with millennials taking selfies of themselves eating smashed avocado on the <laughs> sorry for that aggressive stereotype but, but, but it's kind of true but, it, but the reality is you know outside of the, the southeast and a few pockets within affluent towns and cities there's still a load of people out there who find you, you said earlier on that their shopping is becoming more focused yep. but they still have to fill their, their leisure time and if you don't want to spend money i think you still surely head to your town center as a place to spend time don't you my point is the experience doesn't have to be as stereotyped as as the avocado it could be anything it's just it's just spending leisure time no it is and that's the interesting challenge for people who want to invest in the regions and frankly are committed to bringing best practice and passionate about revitalizing the regions is you can't take what works in Shoreditch and assume it's going to work in Sunderland. You have a different demographic. You have, you know, people behave differently. Uh, I say that as somebody who was born in the Northeast, by the way. There's a lot of people, you do, you, I go to conferences and people talk about, you know, we've got to bring more artisans back onto the high street. Well, great, but is that really the solution for Great Yarmouth? They might be in parts of Great Yarmouth, but it's not, you know, you're not going to recreate Northcote Road in Northwich. We have to, I think you said it earlier, uh, you ha- we have to look at every single location on its merits and put in place solutions that work for that location. I mean, there are going to be, there is best practice. What there isn't enough in the UK is people who are making this stuff work being held up as shining examples or even sharing it enough. Um, as an industry, we could be so much better than that. We've had a raft of CVAs and there's quite a lot of controversy around them. But for me, the underlying tenant of all this is is the relationship between landlord and tenant. And as someone who, who's worked across Europe, within all the sectors I've worked in, retail in the UK seems to be the most antagonistic between landlords and tenants. And I don't say that that's not that's a blanket, no, no, that's a blanket statement. And if you speak to people on their own, there seems to be a, everyone kind of wants to move towards a more turnover-based model. Uh, but there seems to be some kind of fundamental mistrust or structural issue which just prevents that from, from happening. 
uh, yeah, that look, that's a massive bugbear of mine. And if I could turn this interview around, I'd probably spend <laughs> the next 40 minutes asking you about your experience in Europe and what we can learn from it. Um, I think there's, you know, going back to my whole piece about the um, classification issue, I think there's been horrific arrogance in the UK prof- property retail property industry around we do it best and really not at all doing it best and i think we are going to have to reach out to other models you know we do in the uk we do factory outlets work Mm. thrive so you know we can do it but it's the whole system is so hard baked it's baked into values it's baked into fund valuations it's baked into bank covenants it's baked into the lma documents that banks make you sign up for calculating your interest rate ratio cover to unpick all of that you know don't get me wrong it's a massive massive task a massive challenge but i think we've got to do it as you say it's a wider conversation so my my final thing for you is just thinking again about the partnerships we've talked about landlords and tenants and we've also touched on landlords and local authorities the one thing we really haven't talked about is where they can help on in business rates particularly in the locations we're talking about where you know, business rates, because they haven't been uh, reviewed for the best part of 20 years, if you're in areas which have seen phenomenal rental growth, i.e. London, yeah, brilliant, anywhere, everywhere else, they're a massive, massive burden. And surely the easiest thing a local authority could do would be to help restructure the business rates. I'm, I'm so glad you left a really simple question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, where do you start with this one? Okay, okay, let's let's again look look to some factual experience. We invest all over the UK when Northern Ireland revalued at the right time. You know, they didn't kick the can down the road for another few years and they didn't have downward transitional relief. We saw a remarkable difference in the performance of our assets. And actually, if you look at the, the difference it made to Belfast City Centre, it was nothing short of transformational. Um, on the back of that experience, we were part of a uh, group that managed to persuade the Scottish government to do the same, and it, it, it certainly helped. Now, obviously, at the other end of the spectrum, you have got London retailers being clobbered, um, and that's not great. Um, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you did have Bolton subsidising Bond Street for for too many years, and there's you know, in the balancing system that is in place, there's always going to be that re- recalibration. But you know, fundamentally. There is a problem with business rates and how it works within the retail, within retail, not retail property. Um, there is absolute inequity around pure play retailers not paying business rates to the extent that a physical retailer does. Yeah. Co- but by that, mean you mean kind of Amazon are paying business rates? Uh, absolutely. On industrial, you know, I think Amazon. I, 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 the figures I will get slightly wrong, but I think Amazon pays something like twelve million pounds in business rates and. M&S, it's a multiple of hundreds of millions of pounds of business yeah. rates. You know, business rates, for Amazon to exist as a viable business, they are relying on the education system, the roads, the health system, you know, because they have more call-outs to their warehouses than anybody else because people are always falling ill from being, you know, overworked, allegedly. <laughs> uh, read The Guardian if you want to follow up on that. They have to pay their way, I think. And retail is changing. You know, customers do not, you know, we've, I think, as an industry, we're getting beyond talking about online, offline. It's retail. Yeah. Customers see it as retail. They just want stuff and they get it sometimes through the front door. Sometimes a man delivers it. Sometimes they pop to their shop and pick up something they've pre-ordered. They occasionally 
go and do comparison shopping and mooch around, have a cup of coffee, spend time with friends and shop then. It's retail to them. And that role for society needs to be taxed in a similar way. And, you know, so I think some sort of retail sales tax met by the vendor, not the consumer, because otherwise it's just an increase in VAT, has to be... There's got to be something in there that needs investigating further. So you'd, you'd have to take retail property out of business rates completely. That that was the final question. <laughs> it's not. Okay, so something we ask everyone on the show, uh, what, do you have a favourite building? Ooh, crikey. I have lots of favourite buildings. Uh, I I, I kind of like brutalist concrete, which is sort of fairly unusual. That, yeah, that's weird. Um, so favourite buildings... A really good example would be the building, I'm not sure whether it's Monsoon's headquarters still, on the M40 that used to be a a railway repair shop. It's got these beautiful poured concrete curved lines. Uh, Another bizarre favourite of mine is in the middle of the Elephant Castle roundabout. You've got an electricity station, which is all sort of shimmery panels and stuff. Um, Yeah, I I, I really (laughs) like that. Yeah, Yeah, well, you know... It's not the Coliseum. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but then you, you know, you then go and look at the you know the Peace Market in Halifax. Yeah, you know, and if that was, you know, you could be dumped there on a summer's day, and you'd think you're in Renaissance Italy. It's absolutely stunning. And the final question again is, um, I'd be really interested to frame this within the context of community centres is a piece of innovation or uh, technology which you're aware of and kind of excited about how it could help shape the future here's one for you i think people are underestimating the disruptive potential for good and bad and i actually think good of micro manufacturing brought on by 3d printing Hmm. so um let me explain uh i think for environmental reasons as, as much as anything else um repairing rather than replacing things is going to become more and more important And as a result, being able to access replacement parts, improvements to your things uh, on a local basis within your town centre, within your community, I think could be quite interesting. Um, If you look back in the Victorian days, you know, there was a lot of micro-manufacturing in town centres, whether it's tailors or people doing alterations. You know, we've gone through the phase of, you know, almost disposable fashion or we're getting towards the end of it perhaps. So maybe people, yeah, will repair things more rather than throwing them out. You know, people want to access that in a friendly, easily accessible way. And that, that might be a role that technology can play in bringing people back into town centres again. Yeah, that's an like interesting idea. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I should probably just finish by mentioning that you've successfully raised a decent chunk of money to go and put your, uh, your preachings into practice. So um, yeah, we will look forward to uh, following that with interest. And as I mentioned at the start, you are pretty active on on social media so what what's the best way for people to follow what you're up to and your your thoughts i'm I'm hard to avoid some would say very active on linkedin i think linkedin is actually a brilliant um forum for sharing best practice and thoughts and getting debate going um so i'm easily found on linkedin and uh, on twitter i'm at alandi underscore mark and as of next year leading from the front at revo yes how do people get involved with that um, before I got involved in it, um, some people took some very hard decisions and a lot of, of soul-searching about what the organisation wanted to be. 
And now it is very much set up to be the organisation for everybody in the widest sense who's involved in placemaking, for retail and leisure-led places in the UK, whether you're an occupier, a tenant, an architect, a consultant. Um, it is that one place to go where you can network, where you can learn best practice and you know, do deals and make contacts. And um, you know, in, in these difficult, difficult market times, I think it's exactly what our industry needs. Uh, so there you go. It sounds like whether you're retailer, landlord, public sector, private sector, uh, you want to get involved and help shape the debate on retail property or just shout down Mark's views, do feel free to, to sign up. Please do. Uh, Mark, thank you very much. And uh, as I say, we'll be following with interest. Absolute pleasure. Well, there is a lot to summarise after that one. The main point for me is that it's not all doom and gloom on the high street or in our shopping centres. There's plenty of hope, but as with all other asset classes, the style of property management needs to adapt. I'm unsure what the successful blueprint will look like exactly, but a model that encompasses far greater levels of collaboration and data sharing between property owners, property managers, retailers and local authorities is surely a recipe for success. The challenge here is it will require some bold decision-making across the board to implement the kinds of changes that may be required to prevent further deterioration of market conditions in the short term. Beyond that, I think we need a general acceptance that there's good and bad examples across all parties. These issues should never turn into a sector-wide, us-and-them narrative between the component stakeholders, i.e. retailers versus landlords. I'll add some further thoughts to this in my show notes on the website, which is www.buildingourfuture.net. I'll leave you with a final request to recommend the program to a colleague or friend if you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll join me next time on Building Our Future.
Well, look, thank you very much for inviting me over and for uh, for giving up your time to to speak to us. It's been uh, yeah. fascinating. Cheers! Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Shane argues that music is the only universal language and is part of most people's lives, from early education through to the healthy ageing process. It's a simple, cost-effective way of bringing people together and therefore key to helping to build communities. In the space-as-a-service age, this should really be grabbing property owners' attention. From a civic perspective, as our cities enlarge, competing for human capital and resources – Music can not only be a driver of growth and an attracting talent, but also a key tool in solving the crisis of loneliness. Now, due to land value issues, music needs to be integrated into the master planning stage of development in order to be properly effective. Shane believes that for this to happen, cities and authorities need a coherent music policy and an internal music officer who can promote the cause and liaise with planning, hospitality and transport departments to ensure that policy intentions are actually delivered. Sound Diplomacy have witnessed firsthand the efficacy of this, this approach via the creation of London's Nightzar. Developers are all selling through culture to some extent, and music can be yet another string to their bow. However, while data can now demonstrate the value of music over time, demonstrating short-term return on capital does remain an issue. A successful music policy will have to encompass the full music infrastructure from large venues through to grassroots. Shane suggests that for venues with capacity of less than 500 to be viable, mixed-use options should be explored. And I'm sure that tech-enabled solutions such as Vanessa Butz's district can play a role in enabling this duality of buildings. I'll be back next week with a new episode, so please join me as I discuss the transport systems of the future and how we can use technology to deliver major infrastructure projects in a more collaborative and timely manner. Finally, as a small favour and just for a few moments of your time, please do rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts or just like or share the episode-related articles that I'll post on LinkedIn. It really is the best way of getting out our message to the widest community possible, and I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time. Thank you again, and I hope you'll join me next week on Building Our Future.